wanna start our time today just by asking you a really simple question. Can you think back to a time in your life when you were really afraid of something? And just kind of take a minute, jog your, jog your memory and think about a time where you were really afraid and really scared. Now, if, you, if you've been around here a little while, you know I've, I've been pretty open about a couple of my greatest fears are, are sharks, right? So I don't swim in dark ocean water. Saw Jaws as a kid, scarred me for life. So I'm not a fan of sharks. Also don't like heights, okay? So anything over about 10 feet, just my hands get clammy. I don't want any, any part of it. Um, and so I, I can remember when Cheryl and I first got married, she wanted to surprise me by planning and paying for our honeymoon. So single dudes out there, find you a girl that will pay for your honeymoon, all right? And uh, so I had no idea what was gonna happen. So we, we get married, the next day we, we get up, we're going to the airport. I don't know where we're going until, until we get to the Asheville airport. And we get there and it turns out we're going to Key West for our honeymoon, which was awesome, super excited. And uh, so we, we took a flight from Asheville to Miami. And then from Miami down to the Keys, there was like this little puddle jumper airplane we were supposed to get on where like eight people could fit in it. Now, now listen, I've, I've flown all over, the, all over the world my whole life. I've lived overseas since I was a kid. I've been in and out of airports on airplanes literally since I was a baby. It's, it's no big deal flying on these big kind of jet liners, right? Okay, there's a little bit of turbulence and you get a little bit nervous. You start telling some jokes to the person next by just to, just to kind of like get through it a little bit. But let me tell you something, turbulence on one of those small planes is a whole different ball game. Have you ever been on a small plane in turbulence? It is a, man, I was ready to meet Jesus. I mean, I, I, I really, I literally, we started, we started hitting turbulence and that little plane was falling hundreds of feet at a time. I thought I was gonna pass out. I started, I started praying in tongues. I don't even speak in tongues. Oh, Lord Jesus, please come back. I was thinking, hey, look, I'm about to die on my way to my honeymoon. Like I've been waiting for this week my whole life and I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna make it. Like I would, I would just remember that sense of radical fear, man. I was, I was legitimately scared for my life. Um, there's something else you should probably, or maybe you shouldn't know about me, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. I have this really disturbing uh, desire and appreciation for scaring other people. Okay, and, and I realize it's probably a psychological flaw that I should get therapy for. But ever since I was a kid, man, I just, I love scaring people. Now, uh, Jonathan Jones, he, he has the misfortune to have an office right next to mine. So he's got to experience this a few times. JJ, sorry about that. Um, but the one that gets to experience this the most is my wife, all right? And, um, and so the thing that I love to do the most is when my wife is doing something or she's working on something, I'll sneak up all stealth mode right behind her and I won't say a word, I'll just be like an inch behind her until she turns around and she's got the most glorious shriek of terror. She jumps out of her shoes and I will just laugh hysterically for like five straight minutes, man. I love it. I, I know there's something sick in my soul. That's not, that's not normal. Anybody else like that? Or am I the only? Oh, we got a few freaks in here, all right, that... That, that really enjoy seeing somebody else scared to death. But the reality is we probably can all think back to a moment in time where we're really afraid, we're really scared of something. Now here's what's really fascinating. Do you know what the most common command in scripture is? Do not be afraid or some variation of it. When the women who come to the empty tomb of Jesus, like three days after he's crucified, they come to the empty tomb that morning, they encounter the angel. What does the angel say to them? First thing out of his mouth, don't be afraid. 
The first time Jesus sees his disciples after the resurrection, he says to them, peace be to you. In other words, do not be afraid. Man, this is a command that is found literally hundreds of times in some form or fashion, both Old Testament and New Testament, the most common command in all of Scripture. See, it seems like fear is one of the most common and besetting problems in the human heart and soul. Listen to this, the the very first recorded words from the very first humans in the garden, Genesis chapter three, after the fall, guess what the first recorded words are from the first humans? I was afraid and I hid. And see, I think most of us are still living in that paradigm. We, We are afraid and we are hiding. And here's the really interesting thing that I've discovered. Most people have an aversion to to admitting that they struggle with fear. And so we can name our fear all kinds of other things. And so you'll hear people say things like, I mean, Chris, I'm not scared. I mean, like I struggle with anxiety, but I I don't struggle with fear. Or man, like I I worry a lot by nature, but like I get that from my mom's side of the family, kind of genetic. I have no control over it. Or man, I'm just a cautious person. I'm just a nervous person. I just have a little social anxiety, but I'm not a fearful person. Man, listen, we got all kinds of words and terms for fear now, but at its root, guess what it still is? It's fear. And that fear can manifest itself, to be sure, in all kinds of different ways for different people. Now, some folks that I, that I know are men really afraid of death. I, I, just, I, I just kind of imagine if you were to do like a worldwide poll, that probably would be number one or, or number two, the fear of death. So there are a lot of these folk who are scared to death, man. They just live these hyper-cautious lives, man, because there's so much fear that they might get sick or they might get that phone call, that dreaded phone call from the doctor. They're, they're scared they might die. Other folks have a, a fear of social rejection. Man, I can remember feeling this as a middle schooler and high schooler. So maybe, especially some of you students, college students, you can really relate to that, man. The thing that you're afraid of the most is that you're gonna be rejected by your peers, Right, so there's this desire to all kind of like dress alike and think alike and watch the same movies and listen to the same music because you don't want to be seen as different. You don't want to be seen as not being a part of the cool crowd. So there's this real legitimate fear of like social rejection from your peers. And to be sure, like that, that happens for adults as well. For me, if I'm just being uh, transparent, there have been times, there have been seasons of my life where I've really had to battle the fear of failure. I just got this like image in my mind that I'm gonna fail as a pastor or a husband or, or a dad or something like that. I'm gonna come in here one Sunday morning and it's gonna be like me and my wife, you know? Hey, babe, everybody else is gone, right? I've just got this, and I th- to be honest, I think one reason that I'm as driven as I am, man, I'd love to say, man, I, I wake up every morning, I'm just so filled with the Holy Spirit, man. I've got the gospel in front of me, and I just love people so much, man. I'm just driven by love of the Lord, and for, there are days where that is true for me, but I think a lot of days I'm just as driven by fear of failure as I am anything else. For others, I know there's this, really besetting fear of, of financial calamity or loss, right? Man, there's this fear, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose my job and then what's gonna happen? 
What, what happens if I lose my source of income? What, what happens if the economy tanks? What, what, what happens if my 401k evaporates? What, what am I gonna do now? And so a lot of folks that have this fear of this kind of financial loss or calamity, they, they tend to clam up and they don't live generous lives. They're kind of stingy people and they're just kind of focused on themselves. They're just trying to grab everything they can because that's kind of a safety blanket to assuage their fear of what they could lose. And I think if we're being honest this morning, all of us, would have to admit that we either battle this in some form or we have battled it in some form in the past. And as followers of Jesus, I, I want you to know this morning, God wants us to deal with this issue in our hearts. Now, th- this, is, this is crucial, and here's why. If we do not move from a place of fear to a place of faith where we can begin to live our lives fearlessly, listen, guys, we will never experience the abundant life that Jesus has designed for us to walk in as his people. I love this quote that I came across from Robert McGee. He said this, fear and faith can never be co-equals. One will always dominate the other. The more you give yourself to fear, the more difficult it is to experience faith. Now listen, I could take you to a thousand different places in scripture that address this besetting sin in the human heart. But I'm just gonna take you to one place this morning. I wanna encourage you, go ahead and open up your Bibles, turn your device on, go to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. If you're new, we are kind of on the front end of our DNA series where we're kind of just looking at our mission as a church. If you don't know what our mission is, man, we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. We're looking at our vision. We're looking at our four core values And so last week, we looked at one of our core values, multiplying disciples. The core value that we're gonna be looking at this week is fearless mission, fearless mission, all right? So we're gonna start in Romans 8, beginning in verse 15. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the church in Rome. And through the Holy Spirit, 2,000 years later, God is speaking to us through these same words. Romans 8, verse 15. For you, that's us, believers, followers of Jesus. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And what I think Paul is saying there is believer Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid, man? You're not, you are not a slave anymore. Don't you dare fall back into patterns of fear. Like, heck no, don't you realize Jesus rose from the dead. He gave you his spirit. God has adopted you as sons and daughters of the most high. What are you afraid of? Don't you realize your dad is the king of all? I've been told by a a couple of people throughout my life, once in high school and once by a supervisor when I was in my 20s that I can come across, even though I don't intend to, as, as being unapproachable. So if I, listen, if I've ever come across to you in that way, let me just publicly apologize to you. That, that is not my intent at all. I think people that really know me know that's not true about me. Maybe I just have a arresting witch face or something like that. I'm not, not really sure. But I apparently at some point in my life have come across like that multiple times. But, but you know who doesn't feel that way? Ever? My children. 
My, my kids never have to set an appointment to meet with Reverend Dylan, right? My, my, my kids have full access to me and they know that I am absolutely crazy about, that, about them because I tell them a billion times a day how much I love them, I annoy the heck out of them, I give them like a million hugs a day and kissing them and they're like, oh dad, come on God, get off me, man. I know, I know you love me, right? They, they know there's nothing they could ever do ever do that would make me stop loving them, ever. And I think what Paul's saying is, hey, listen, believer, we have that kind of access, love, and acceptance from God through Jesus. It's about time some of us begin to live in light of that truth. Listen, what is the worst thing that could happen to us? We die? And then we we go and we're with Jesus in perfect, flawless paradise for eternity. Like I'm supposed to be scared of that. And Paul kind of continues on this uh, train of thought later on in Romans 8. Look at verse 38 in the same chapter, Paul continues. One of the most hopeful passages in all of scripture, I think. Paul writes this, for I am sure. In other words, there is no doubt. This is not a question. This is not a maybe. This is not a possibility. He says, for I am sure, I am certain that neither death nor life, you're afraid of death, what are you afraid of death for? Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Why are you scared of your past? Why are you scared of your future? Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying, believer, Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus ever. Stop being fearful of what your peers think about you. Stop being afraid that you might fail at something in your life. Stop being afraid that you might get sick or die. Embrace a fearless spirit that's been given to you by Jesus. And here's why, friend. We cannot engage in the mission of God fully until we move from a place of fear to a place of freedom. And I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, man, there are no small number of believers today, maybe even in this room, who are frustrated in their faith walk. You're frustrated because you sense that there's more out there for you. There's more out there in the Christian life, but you just can't seem to tap into it. And my guess is that it's probably because fear has a foothold somewhere in your life. And if that is you, I want you to know this morning that God wants to set you free from that spirit of fear. He wants you to move beyond that place. That's why our core value, one of our core values that new life is fearless mission. We gotta deal with, deal with the fearless piece first because if we don't deal with that first, we can never you know, accurately engage in the mission piece. So I want you to go to Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. That's where we're gonna spend the rest of our time this morning. And in this narrative, the Apostle Paul gives us this stunningly beautiful example of how we can engage culture fearlessly, by the way, guys, I want you to listen to this, fearlessly as a spiritual minority. Now, in case you haven't noticed, especially in Asheville, and I think it's probably taken root all over the country, but the last stats I saw just a couple of years ago had Buncombe County, okay, where we sit, 
at 70 to 80% unchurched, which means the vast majority of people in our city, in the area that we live, don't know God and don't have a relationship with Jesus. And so for the first time in American culture, we are finding ourselves as a spiritual minority. Now that bothers a lot of folk, right? Especially if you grew up in the deep South, the Bible Belt culture, where, where the kind of Christian culture was the dominant majority culture. And now you feel like it's kind of flipped upside down. You're like, oh dang, we feel like we lost our power and what's going on and we need to fight back against this. Listen, I want you to understand something. Jesus, the disciples, the early church, all lived as spiritual minorities in their culture and the church thrived in that setting. It was incredibly powerful because it was countercultural. It, it was the opposite of what culture was offering to people. And so there were tons of cultural refugees that were looking for something else and they were looking for answers and the church had that something else and had those answers. But we gotta understand, listen, there are effective ways and there are ineffective ways of engaging our culture as spiritual minorities especially in a culture that doesn't really get us now, right? The majority culture around us doesn't really get us. They don't really understand us. They don't really know what we're all about. And so I wanna, I wanna show you, I wanna give you kind of three things in Acts chapter 17. I'm gonna be borrowing from Tony Morita, one of my uh, preaching professors. He's actually written a commentary on the book of Acts, but three questions that will kind of break up this section in Acts 17. Number one, what Paul sees, right? So when, when Paul rolls in to, to a new city in Athens in Acts 17, what does he see? That's gonna inform how we should see our city. And then we're gonna ask the second question, what does Paul feel? When he looks at the city, when he looks at the culture, that's not a predominantly Christian culture, what does he feel? And then number three, how does Paul engage? What does he see? What does he feel? How does he engage? And then we're just gonna draw out a couple of applications. So let's begin in verse 16 of chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, Luke, uh, Dr. Luke writes this. Now, while Paul, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so, so Paul had just been kicked out of another city for preaching the gospel fearlessly. Uh, he's arrived in Athens, he's waiting for his posse uh, to show up. So he's there, he's kind of exploring a little bit. It says, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems like a, a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to therefore know what these things mean. So Paul, Paul rolls into Athens, which you gotta know was like the cultural epicenter of the ancient world, right? Like so all the great thinkers either came from the city or would come to the city. This was the birthplace of modern medicine. This was a, the center for the arts. The first a democracy was crafted here, right? This is, a, this is a happening place. Lots of smart people, lots of intellectuals. Listen, it was also a very spiritual place, but utterly and completely devoid of any knowledge of the God of the Bible, 
Jesus or the gospel. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should. I would argue that we, almost 2,000 years later, are living in this same exact kind of culture in the 828. Man, it is uncanny how relevant Acts 17 is for the Christ follower in the 828 in 2021. So what does Paul see when he, when he steps off the boat, when he rolls into Athens, as he waits for his posse to show up so they can start doing ministry, what does he see? Does he see a Baptist church on every street corner? Bunch of people meeting, having uh, Bible studies in uh, you know, the Starbucks on the corner. They're stu- studying a little Beth Moore, studying a little Priscilla Shire, something like that. No, he sees an uncountable sea of idols. So you gotta understand the, uh, the Athenian people were very spiritual people. In fact, they embraced every form of spirituality. It was kind of like a, a spiritual buffet in Athens. Right? What's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. There's no absolute truth. Just kind of you do you sort of spirituality. Does that sound familiar to anyone? This is the exact spiritual culture that exists here in Asheville today. So what did Paul see when he got to Athens? He saw a sea of endless idols. Now listen, I would argue in our culture today, the idols are not quite as visible. Maybe they're not quite as obvious, but I would say they are just as present in our culture, in our city today. I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton. I'll put it on the screens for you. Chesterton says this, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing, he believes in anything. And isn't that so true? When we step away from, from the knowledge and belief that there is a creator God who's ultimately good and has purpose in this life for us, it's not like we cease to believe anything. We, we actually be, will believe anything and everything, right? That's what we see in our culture. That's what Paul saw in Athens. And as followers of Jesus, I think, man, we've got to learn how to, to be able to identify the cultural idols in our city, in our day, so that we can engage people. For instance, what about the idol of materialism? Do you think that has a root in our culture today? Now, I would say also, we gotta be careful as believers as we look through some of the cultural idols, modern day idols, we have to make sure that those, those cultural idols don't have roots in our own hearts. Because it's real easy for us, even as followers of Jesus, to, to really sort of cling on to some of these cultural idols without even realizing it and accepting them. So the idol of materialism, man, is, is massive. How many people are giving their lives away to get a bigger house or newer cars or the next iPhone or whatever it is, man? People are just living for stuff, materialism. What about the idol of comfort or entertainment? Man, man, we are the generation of Netflix and YouTube and social media. We got entertainment at our fingertips 24-7, man. I'm talking people just spend hours of their day every day just, just scrolling, right? Just consuming entertainment, looking at what other people are doing, looking at all kinds of things. It's huge. What about the idol of sexual liberation? We spent all summer preaching about sex and relationships, right? What about the idol of sexual liberation? I mean, all the stats show that it's actually, it hasn't been liberation over the last 40 or 50 years. It's actually been sexual enslavement. That's the result of that movement. But that's a huge idol, just the kind of, kind of the freedom of sexual expression, that there's no bounds on what I do and how I express myself sexually. What about the idol of individualism in our culture? Man, can't nobody tell me what to do? I am the captain of my own ship. 
the master of my destiny. I am an American by God. Nobody can tell me what to do, right? A lot of that. Now, the gospel, the good news is the gospel breaks into and tears down each and every one of those idols. But listen, guys, as followers of Jesus, we've got to put in the work to engage these idols and winsomely tell people why those dogs don't hunt. And I'm convinced, man, if we, if we will open our eyes in our culture, in our city, we will see a sea of idols where we live just like Paul did. So that's what Paul sees when he, when he rolls into Athens, he sees a sea of idols, tons of people who are enslaved to spiritual things that are not truth, that will never bring them happiness, satisfaction, or hope. Now, the second question is, what, what does Paul feel? What, is, what does Paul feel in his soul when he sees these things. Verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked within him. Now that Greek word that we translate provoke literally means to irritate or to arouse anger within. Now I don't think Paul is angry at the people. We see that later on in the text. I think his anger is directed to the spiritual darkness that enslaved the people. This is, this is righteous anger. This is Holy anger driven by a compassion for people. So let me just ask you a very simple question this morning, follower of Christ. When is the last time your heart was provoked? That your spirit was stirred at the spiritual lostness that enslaves countless people that you know and love. See, I think most Christians in our culture, most believers in our culture today have one of two responses when they look out at the spiritual darkness and the idolatry in our culture. I think the two most common responses are one, indifference, or two, disgust. So some of us are indifferent, right? And, and my tendency is, is probably to lean that direction. So we see people, we know people who are far from God and we just think, it's not my problem, man. Like, I know the Lord, I'm, I'm good. My, my wife knows the Lord, my kids know the Lord. Like, we're, we're good. It's not, this is not my problem, man. They hate God, they probably deserve what's coming. We're just kind of indifferent. We see people, there's no response at all. It's just, we're just dead emotionally to the pain and suffering and losses of people around us. So that's one response I think a lot of believers have is they're just kind of indifferent to the idolatry and spiritual darkness around them. The second response is disgust. So we kind of look at the world around us. And we go, ooh, gross. Right? Like I, I'm, I'm not going downtown, man. People got purple hair down there and lip rings and neck tattoos. There's rainbow flags flying all over the place. So let's just huddle up in our little Christian bubble and let's stay away from the unwashed masses of sinners so we don't get contaminated by all those sinners and nasty people out there. And can I just say that both approaches, indifference and disgust, both miss the heart of Jesus entirely. Entirely. Listen guys, our, our hearts should be stirred. Our spirits should be provoked when we see people that are separated from their creator who are chasing idols who will lead them not to happiness, but anxiety and hopelessness and depression. So that's the first application that I wanna give you this morning. Number one on the screens, believer, pray for gospel goggles. Pray that God would give you those lenses through which Paul saw Athens, that we'd be able to look at people and not be indifferent and not be disgusted, but we would see them the way that God sees them. 
Just pray that prayer. God, please help me not be indifferent to spiritual suffering and lostness. Please help me not be disturbed or disgusted. Help me to see them as you see them. And as God gives you those gospel lenses, those gospel goggles, man, let's start to slay that indifference in our hearts and that disgust in our minds. And here's the second application that goes along with it. Number two, pray that God would provoke you to compassion and action, just like he did Paul when he saw a city full of idolatry. Pray, first of all, that God would give you the lenses to see people, to see culture, to see this city the way that he does. And pray that he would prick your heart that you wouldn't be satisfied to just be indifferent to it, that you wouldn't be disgusted by it, but that you would actually be moved to compassion for these people and action for their good. Look at what Paul does when he sees all of these people who are enslaved to gods who can do nothing for them. Look at verse 17. I'll put this on the screens for you. He says this, or Luke says this. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So see, Paul goes to religious places to engage religious people, and then he goes to the marketplace, he goes to the street, he goes in the culture to engage people who are far from Jesus. And see, there are far too many Christians today that we get the first part of that equation, man. We'll come to church all day long. We'll come to Bible studies all day long. We'll come to safe environments all day long. And we'll talk about Jesus. We'll talk about the gospel. But we never, ever get to the second part of that equation where we're engaging the world and the culture with the hope of Jesus Christ. Listen, guys, this is Missional Living 101. We talked about this last week when we looked at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus has called us to go to people. This is not a come and see ministry or mentality. This is a go and tell, go into the highways, go into the byways, engage the culture. Don't bubble up in your little Christian bubbles. Get out there and engage with people. They need Jesus. And that leads me right into our third application point. I say this with love in my heart. Christian, it's time to get up off the couch and do something. It is time to get up off your spiritual couch and do something in the kingdom of God. Listen, I don't even care so much what you do. I just want you to do something. And there are far too many of us who just... And we get in this pattern and it dominates our lives where we get up on Monday morning and we go to school or we go to work, we punch in, we punch out, man. We drive home, we close the garage door behind us, we eat dinner and then we just kind of veg out in front of Netflix for two or three hours until we get tired enough to fall asleep and we do that rinse and repeat day after day, month after month, year after year and after 50 years, we die. And can I just say, church family, what a lame existence. What a lame, boring life. As sons and daughters of the king of this universe, with the power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. And listen, I'm just gonna tell you, if, if, you, if you start to pray these prayers, you might wanna be careful because I think God will begin to answer those prayers. And if you start praying these prayers, if you start saying, hey God, I want you to give me gospel goggles. I want you to give me those lenses through, through which I can see people like you. God, I want you to provoke my heart to compassion for people and action for people. 
Let me tell you what I think is gonna happen in your life. God's going to begin to work in your heart. He's gonna begin to break your heart for certain things, certain issues. He's gonna give you a passion for certain people. And for some of you, the way that's gonna look is he's gonna break your heart for orphans, right? And you're, gonna, you're just gonna get passionate about adoption. You're gonna get passionate about foster care. And if that happens, that's awesome, man. We've just recently walked a couple of families through that process. It's awesome. We wanna celebrate that. For others of you, man, you're gonna have your heart stirred for people that are trapped in cycles of, of poverty or victims of human sex trafficking. And if that's, if that's where God kind of pushes your passion and the place of your action, then, then praise God. We wanna empower that in you. For others of you, man, God is gonna give you a passion for the 3.2 billion people in the world who have little to no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, guys, 3.2 billion I'm talking about cultures where generation after generation after generation of people are born, live their entire lives, and die, and never, not one single time, hear the glorious news of the gospel. We can't be okay with that, church. People can live their whole lives and never not once hear that there's a God in heaven who loves them and created them and has purpose for their life and loves them so much that he sent Jesus to live a perfect life for them, to die to pay for their sins and rose again to give them new life now and eternity. And they live for generations, not ever hearing this one single time. God's gonna stir some of your hearts for that, man. And your next step is gonna be to take a global mission trip with us. I hope you do. I hope you take a global mission trip with us in 2022. We're putting some of those plans in place right now. Listen, I don't really care so much what you do. I'm just saying, believer, we gotta do something. We gotta, we gotta engage people. We gotta engage our culture. We have to love people in practical ways and then share the hope that we have through Jesus in our lives. So the people in this huge bustling city in Athens, right? They hear Paul, engage them, right? He's going to the marketplace, talking to people that are far from God. He's going to the synagogue, talking to religious people. And in both places, he's saying the same thing. He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And their response is, what is this babbler saying? And that's gonna be the response in our culture from a lot of people, right? What is this moron saying? Talking about some dude 2,000 years ago who lived and died, rose again, he's still alive today. What is this moron talking about? And so they invite Paul to the Areopagus, this huge kind of outdoor amphitheater where important people in that culture talked about important things. And Paul, listen, Paul doesn't reject that. He's not like, man, I'm not gonna talk to all those sinners, man. I might get polluted by all those nasty thoughts and those nasty sinners. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to church, have a Bible study. No, he, he accepts their invitation. He goes, and listen, he does a beautiful and brilliant job of gospeling these people in his culture that had no knowledge of the gospel, which by the way, I'm just telling you, lots of your friends, families, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, they're in the same boat. They have no idea what the gospel is. And from watching how he engages his culture, I think there are several things we can take and apply to our life. So let's start in verse 22. This is what happens. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, so man, he's standing in front of all these people, and he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now let's just hit pause right there. As we work through this, I wanna give you three ways from the apostle Paul of how we can engage our culture. So here's number one, here's number one, how to engage our culture. Number one, lead with kindness. Lead with kindness. Now notice, Paul starts by complimenting them. Right? He, he doesn't walk up in there and go, man, you bunch of pagan sinners, 
Y'all gonna bust the gates of hell wide open, you nasty, filthy dog. No, he, he starts with, hey guys, listen, I, uh, I perceive that you guys are really religious, man. Like I can tell y'all are very spiritual people. I think that's cool. That's admirable that you guys are religious, that you're spiritual people, right? He, he leads with, with kindness in his discourse with culture. And I think as Christians, as modern day Christians, oftentimes we can lead with our theology when we ought to lead with our love. Now, now listen, I, I think theology is important. We got 25 people meeting upstairs right now in this moment going through a biblical theology class. It's important for us to know what the Bible says. It's important for us to have a biblical worldview. That's important. But oftentimes we're leading with our doctrine when we should be leading with our love first. That's what Paul does here. Now he continues on uh, in verse 23. He says, for I passed along, he compliments them, for I passed along, observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. Listen, diversity, cultural diversity, ethnic diversity, guess what? God's idea. If you're a racist, you're gonna hate heaven, right? He made from one man every nation of mankind. Why? To live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. We say this a lot here too. You're not here by accident. You live in 2021 instead of 1683 for a reason and a purpose. You live in the neighborhood that you live in on purpose, by design. You have the college roommates you have on purpose by design. You work with the people you work with. You go to the school, the people that you go to school with on purpose by design. God has determined and allotted the period of time and the boundaries of everybody's dwelling place. Why? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now Paul begins to quote their pagan poets and philosophers. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That just means to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, do you catch what Paul just did there? He just, listen guys, he just built a bridge from culture to the gospel of Jesus. And he even uses one of their idols to do it, right? He says, hey guys, as I was strolling into Athens, I noticed there was this idol that said to an unknown God. See, these Athenians, they were so paranoid they were gonna miss a God that they actually made a God, an idol that said to the unknown God. Just in case he showed up one day and he was ticked off, they could be like, hey, big daddy, yours is right there, right? See, we didn't forget about you. We worship you too. They were paranoid. And Paul goes, he steps on the scene. He goes, guys, listen, I saw that idol that said to the unknown God, I got something to tell you. I know that God. 
I know him personally. And he is the one true God. And he created all of this, all of this world, everything that you see. And he sent Jesus on a rescue mission to live the perfect life for you and for me that we could never live. And to die a sinner's death to pay for our sin. And he rose again on the third day to give us victory in this life and the one to come. Man, he uses their own idol as a segue into the gospel. That's beautiful. And not only that, he doesn't stop there. He actually quotes their pagan poets and philosophers. And then he ties those things into a gospel conversation. I mean, this, is, this is masterful. And that's the second way that we engage culture. The first way Paul teaches us, I think, is we gotta, we gotta lead with kindness, right? We don't lead with our theology. We lead with kindness. Number two, we gotta learn how to build gospel bridges in our culture, just like Paul did. Listen, guys, we, we gotta find cultural talking points and then build bridges to Jesus. So listen, if someone likes sports, I don't really care if you like sports, read up on their team, <laughs> I can remember when we, when we moved to, to Indonesia, man, uh, premier, the Premier Soccer League, man, that was the thing over there. I, I've hated soccer my whole life. Well, guess what? I picked a team, man. I, Liverpool is my team now, right? I picked Liverpool, man. I did a historical research on that, that team. I memorized the players that, so that I could have conversations with people and then point them to the gospel. If you know somebody that likes Star Wars, you're not into Star Wars, I don't care. Go watch Star Wars, Watch the whole series. Get into it, right? If somebody likes country music, God bless their misguided souls, then go, go, <laughs> go listen to some T. Swift or some Blake Shelton or some Zach Brown band or something, man. Force yourself to do it so you can engage people with the gospel, man. If, if you find somebody they're into Indian food, go buy some Tums. Eat some Indian food, right? Get, in, get into it. Figure out how to get into their world. And when you get into their world, insert Jesus whenever possible. This is missional living. Listen, guys, this is not rocket science. You don't have to have a seminary degree to do this. You don't have to be a pastor or a missionary to do this. You just gotta be intentional about living life and the relationships that God has already placed around you all over the place. Well, what's the response that Paul gets? As he engages these people, he leads with kindness, he builds a bridge from their culture to the gospel. He's not disgusted by their culture. He uses their culture as a bridge to the gospel of Jesus. What's the response? Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but listen, but some man joined him and believed among whom were also Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. So listen those, are, listen, those are the same responses you're gonna get as you begin to live intentionally missional in your life. Some people will mock you. They'll say, what is this babbler talking about? They believe in fairy tales, man. They're talking about some dude that lived thousands of years ago. He died, he rose again, he's alive today. Man, what, what? they will mock you for it. There are other people, the second category, people that will be curious. But they're not gonna believe, they're not gonna jump in. They're not gonna come to church with you the next week, but they're gonna be curious, right? They're gonna be on the fence. They're gonna wanna hear more. They might start asking you questions. They might just kind of curiously wanna start hanging out with you. They're not gonna tell you why, but they're just kind of curious about this spirituality that you have. And then there's a third category of people, and it's those who will believe. 
If you do this, if I do this consistently, there will be a number of people who hear the gospel, see it lived out, and they will be attracted to it, they will respond to it, and they will find hope and life in Jesus Christ because of the way that we are engaging the culture around us. So that's the third part of engaging the culture. Number three is we gotta expect God to show up, guys. We gotta expect God to show up. See, I think a lot of us don't even engage because we don't believe that God would show up even if we did engage people. See, we are a people of a feeble faith, man. We are inhibited by fear when Jesus wants to free us up so that we can live on mission with him. And so here's the big idea, then we're done. I'm gonna put it on the screens for you. Here's the big idea. The glorious mission of Jesus awaits the fearless heart of the person that loves him. Listen, follower of Jesus, you got nothing to be afraid of got nothing to be afraid of. We just had a beautiful celebration of life here yesterday. Many of you were here. We celebrated Chris Spurrier, a faithful, longtime member at New Life. This guy spent the last 26 years of his life in a wheelchair with all kinds of health issues and problems and unimaginable pain and suffering every single day of his life. Listen, my man Chris had every reason to hide out to be fearful, especially over the last 18 months, to disengage from the mission of God, to just kind of lay down and give up. Yet he was one of the most fierce prayer warriors this church has ever seen. Chris was constantly looking for ways to engage people with the gospel, even with all of his limitations. And so church, I just wanna say to you with love in my heart this morning, church, we got no excuse. We got no excuse, man. It is time for us to get off the bench and to get in the game. Fearless mission is in our DNA. It will be our DNA. And so I wanna end as the band comes with just one simple question. How are you going to engage fearless mission in your life starting tomorrow, this week? How are you gonna engage fearless mission in your life? What step do you need to take to get off the bench and into the game of God's mission in a fearless way this week? I'm not talking about next month. I'm not talking about after the holidays. I'm not talking about when things slow down for you. I'm not talking about when you retire, your kids get out of the house and you have more time. Listen, you're never gonna have more time. I've discovered that, man. Every stage of my life, I think the next stage is gonna be like more chill, more relaxed, more time. No, it gets busier. It gets more hectic. At some point, guys, we just gotta make a decision to jump all in, go in with both feet. And say, God, I'm not gonna be satisfied with just running this rat race of life, of clocking in, clocking out, coming home, vegging out on Netflix and falling asleep for the next 50 years, 60 years. Like, that's not good enough. That's too lame, God. You died, you rose again, you've given me your Holy Spirit, I have your power within me and this is the life that I'm gonna trade that for? Just the question for you is simply, man, how are you gonna engage? Because listen guys, we gotta engage, we gotta engage. We have to engage in God's mission. Again, I don't care so much what you do, I just care that you do something, find something, do something. And if you're like, Chris, man, I, I hear you, man. I, I, I wanna do that. I, I wanna obey this. I wanna be fearless. I wanna engage in God's mission. But I, man, I don't know how. I got, I'm working 60 hours a week. I'm running my kids to soccer practice every other night. Man, I, I don't know how to, listen, if you don't have a clue where to start, reach out to us. 
That's why we're here, man. We love to talk. We love to have coffee this week or next week. Man, we got, we got Rodney Howell as our mission pastor. That's why we hired, that's what he does. He would love to talk with you about how to marry your passion and your gifting with our city partners, with our partners around the world so that you could engage in God's mission in a fearless way. Listen, guys, let's be doers of the word. Let's be doers of the word, as James says, not just hearers, man. We can't have fat heads, man, where we just come here every week and we're soaking it up and we go to Bible study and we're soaking it up. We go to small group and we sew it up, but we never actually put this stuff into practice. Let's become doers of the word, not just hearers, for the glory of our King, for the good of those who don't yet know him. Let's pray and then we're gonna sing together. God, we come to you and we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the times when, when it's hard, when, when it pushes us out of our comfort zone, when it makes us uncomfortable, when it makes us cringe. And you give us these things, Father, not because you hate us, but because you love us. And you know that our satisfaction is only gonna be found when we're living on mission with you, God. And so would you help us? Would you start by giving us those gospel goggles, those gospel lenses that the apostle Paul had so that we could begin to see our city and our culture, not with indifference and not with disgust, but that you would provoke our hearts, that you would stir our hearts to compassion and action so that we could engage people with the best news of the world, that there's a God who loves them. And we've seen it in Jesus. God, would you help us to become a missional people who are living fearlessly? And we pray it all in the strong and good name of Jesus. Amen. Church family, let's stand and let's worship our King.